great to be here with you. And first of all, don't worry, nothing happened in Roseburg recently, so you don't have to look on your phone. Sometimes we, uh, we add current events to those prayers, and sometimes they don't get subtracted the next time we use them, especially when our administrator is out of town, um, and so I'm not quite as good at those things. So, but do uh, continue to pray for Matt and his dad, uh, Jim. Um, he's in Bend today, and uh, things are not looking so great, and so we really kind of need um, a miracle for there, and it had been looking good for a while. So pray for Matt, pray for Jim and their family. Um, as we continue this uh, celebration of Easter, uh, it runs actually until Pentecost, so it wasn't over last week. Um, we are going to do just a one-off series or sermon uh, this morning in the book of James, and then next week we'll be starting a rather extensive uh, study of the Gospel of Matthew, where we're asking the um, question of what is in town, and we're going to look at sort of the ABCs of in town underneath uh, the banner of looking at our um, mission statement. So you can look it up on our website, and we'll take each of sort of the major terms in there and reflect upon what that means for us and who we are underneath those terms. So I hope that you can join us. It'll run probably through the summer. Um, so uh, it'll be, you know, a little bit long, but I think it's important, and I think it'll be interesting. Uh, Matthew is a wonderful book um, to study and to get to know. So our New Testament reading this morning is James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of the Lord. So I was having lunch with uh, an in-towner this week, and uh, they said, I'll tell you what I like about in-town. And I was, of course, all ears, and I was thinking, you know, wonderful community, uh, rich but relevant worship, and oh, the preaching is so great. But no, they said, what I like about in-town is that you don't really expect too much of us. So 
I asked permission to use this, and of course, I'm not going to tell you who it was, but I actually greatly appreciated this comment because, especially knowing their background, in town had offered something to them where people were free to explore, free to express their doubts, free to heal, and free to rest, that we weren't a place that demanded conformity that we weren't a place that was constantly telling you how to think and how to act and how to live your life. And it captured something for me incredibly important and incredibly true about the kind of church that I think we are and that we are becoming. But it also offered an interesting perspective on this passage that I knew at that point that I was going to be teaching from because it's a little different, isn't it? seems to be very demanding, and some of the verses that we read, the passages through the liturgy, are very demanding. They seem that it does, they do expect a lot of us. And this one particularly is about works, about obedience, which offers us a caution against the kind of theology that doesn't demand something, that exists comfortably in our minds and in the creeds, and in the confessions, and in history, and on paper, but doesn't seem to make any real difference in the way that we go about life. Now, we probably all have examples in our minds of people who are sort of, on one hand, theological savants. They know everything. They can use big words, and they can quote theologians and quote creeds, and yet they're kind of jerks. Something's wrong there, right? And conversely, we know people who don't know a lick of sophisticated theology who, in fact, may not even be believers who yet live out this sort of compassionate, kind life of non-judgment and forgiveness, all of these Christian virtues. Well, why is this? Well, part of it, I think, is that all of us live at times inconsistent with what we say that we believe. But much deeper than that, and here's the the needle that we're trying to thread it in town and try to thread in this passage, is that the Bible talks about grace and obedience, that it talks about grace and the law, and that a surface reading can be confusing because it's polyphonic, it's coming from so many different angles, and it seems to say one thing and then the other and holds things in tension rather than perfect clarity. There are tensions that are difficult to work out in daily practice. So we're going to look at this incredible passage in James, but we have to do it in conversation with the rest of the Bible and particularly the Apostle Paul's writing because a surface reading of either is difficult to reconcile. How can the Bible say on one hand that salvation, that is the rescue of God, is entirely by grace and at the same time place demands upon the saved upon the rescued. Well, this passage talks about four different types of believers, and we're going to look at them just in order and hopefully make some comments that make sense of this. First of all, verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Sasha Baron Baron Cohen is a a filmmaker, um, incredibly funny, but as a warning, incredibly profane, so I'm not necessarily recommending his films to all of you, but his bread and butter is creating characters and then 
embodying and acting as these characters and staying in character long past the pain threshold. Um, one of them is Ali G, who ostensibly is this British journalist, and he covers media and politics in Britain. And he manages to set up interviews with these incredibly important politicians, and they're a total disaster because Ali G acts in such a way and asks questions that we as the audience know that no one that ignorant, no one that bird brain could possibly be a legitimate uh, journalist. But because he has presented certain credentials, the politician or the media figure thinks that he's real, and you can see their wheels turning as they're answering the questions. Is this, what is happening to me? And we as the viewer are, you know, in stitches or at least, you know, in pain because it's so uncomfortable. And the interview just goes, gets more and more painful. Well, James is talking about people who make claims of faith but really are imposters. And unlike seeing through the Ali G character, he says that it's actually very easy to see who are the imposters, who have the wrong credentials. And it's that they are uncompassionate towards needy people. It's very easy to see. Imposters in the Christian faith are uncompassionate towards needy people. James wants us to ask, can a Christian, a true believer, not care about the needs of others? Can they not care about the things that God says are close to His heart? Much of this chapter that we didn't read, it talks about poverty as, and care of the poor as one of the quintessential signs of true faith. And why? Because in verse 5, James says, God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom. And so care for those who are poor, care for those who are needy, demonstrates a heart and a life that is given to the kingdom of God and given to the purposes of God and kingdom priorities rather than on the purposes and priorities of our individual selves. Now, we know we are all naturally drawn towards people who are like us, who share our life world, who share our experiences, who share our socioeconomic status and so forth. We're drawn to them because they're comfortable, they're easy, and because they affirm something about us. They have a similar story. Now, here's the thing. What James, I think, is saying is that if you're a Christian, you should be drawn to the poor and needy because you understand their story, because you know that in the most fundamental foundational way that you are one of them. The old cliche about kids or people who can't get along or that they are oil and water. And oil and water really don't mix, right, because they have different viscosities. You pour them together and they separate. But if you pour two oils together and they're the different, a different color, they intermix and they intermingle because what is true about them, what is most foundational about them, is much more true than what is different and significant than what is different. That is their different color or their different cost. Christian repentance at its most essential is expressed in terms of Christian poverty or spiritual poverty. And so if you believe the basics of the gospel, you will see yourself in poor people in needy people. 
in every person of deficit, not just financial, but social, spiritual, financial, economic, emotional. If you don't, then while you may say that you're saved by grace, you don't really believe it. And instead, you'll become condescending to people who are different from you because they haven't arrived like you have. They haven't made it like you have. Their story is different. Your story is different. And we'll say, go in peace, keep warm, and well-fed. This person you see gives mere words, empty words. And James is saying that their claim to faith is just the same. It's mere words, empty words. Orthodoxy without compassion should be just as obviously fraudulent as an Ali G interview. So that's the first kind of believer. Secondly, we see a demonic believer. Faith by itself, verse 17, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Now, in town, as if you belong here, you probably know this. I hope you do, but we're a church in the Reformed Presbyterian tradition. And there are some great things about this tradition, or I wouldn't, you know, be up here and be a pastor in that tradition. Some of the most sophisticated and beautiful and nuanced confessions and creeds have come out of this tradition in the past 500 years. So, when James says, you have good theology, well, good for you, we should perk up because he's talking to us. He's picking on our strength. And in many ways, oftentimes, someone's greatest strength, the tradition's greatest strength, can become its greatest weakness as well. Notice the demons have very good doctrine. They don't just know it, but they believe that it's true. They know the power and the transcendence and the, ma- uh, the magnificence and the holiness of God. But what does it cause them to do? It causes them to shudder, to tremble, to shiver. And human beings, we can have that same relationship with God, right? We know His power. We know His judgment. We know we read about His wrath. And so we're constantly trying to live up to Him. He's our big- biggest and most constant critic. And this can lead us to become very moral, very religious people, not out of a response to God's grace, but to avoid His displeasure. But it's all shuddering. It's all trembling. It's all shivering. And we're wondering when we're going to outrun His patience. Now, this isn't a criticism against good doctrine, per se, because The demon's doctrine is accurate, but it's incomplete. Those with the best doctrine actually should be the most loving. Those with the best theology should be the ones most concerned about the needs around them. Those who understand good theology, right theology, should be most in love with God. But it doesn't always work that way because theology, like anything else, can lead to and can support false religion. It can be used as an instrument of pride and of division rather than of unity and love and forgiveness. 
Herman Bavinck was a, a 19th century theologian, and he was a theologian by trade. In fact, he wrote four volumes of dogmatic theology, so theology was important to him. And he says, Roman Catholic righteousness by good works is vastly preferable to a Protestant righteousness by good doctrine. At least righteousness by good works benefits one's neighbor, whereas righteousness by good doctrine only produces lovelessness and pride. Now, I hesitated to use this quote because it's a bit of a caricature of Roman Catholicism, but it's great in terms of self-criticism and opening our own tradition up to what can be broken and wrong about it, right? We can't get to God through right thinking any more than we can get to God through right living. The demons are orthodox, yet terrified and tormented. Theology is meant to be in service to love and to relationship and to the love of neighbor. But here's another way that scriptures can be a bit confounding and polyphonic because James says that the demons fear God, and it's a terrified, shuddering type of experience. Yet he talks about Abraham who fears God, but it doesn't lead to shuddering. It leads to what? Obedience and worship. And this is our third kind of believer, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without works is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous, righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the Scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. I love that part. You see that people are justified by what they do and not by faith alone. So, we're going to get to verse 24 because that's a very sticky verse, but we see in review, first of all, the uncompassionate believer. This one is, makes a confession, and it's all about words. It's all about how they've memorized the script. They claim to have relationship with God, but it doesn't soften them. It doesn't make them more loving. And in fact, God is this sort of distant dictator God who they fear and they run away from, and they hide in moralism and in religion. Secondly, there's the demonic believer who is, you know, the, the sleeper agent. They're Elizabeth and Philip on the Americans. Have you seen that show? They can pass the test of citizenship. They know the rules to obey. They live as if they're an American citizen, but if they're arrested and probe deeper, then their story wouldn't hold up, and therefore they run from the police. They fear the authorities. Abraham is a third kind of believer, and he's the submissive believer. You see, he fears God, but he runs toward him. The demons fear God, and they run in fear. They're tormented. They shudder. Abraham fears God, and he runs to God. It's a relational fear. It's different. But see, Abraham knew not only God's transcendence and power and incomparable holiness, but he knew also his nearness and his love and his compassion. Because why? God had befriended Abraham. Abraham was God's friend. Now, let's talk just for a moment about verse 24, because if you've read any theology or church history, Martin Luther threw out the book of James, particularly based upon this verse. He called it the epistle of straw. 
and he didn't believe that all the books in the Bible were actually inspired. This one was not. It was the epistle of straw because it contradicted the free grace that he read about in Paul and throughout much of the rest of the Bible. And when you read verse 24, you can see the problem. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Well, faith alone is one of the primary tenets of the Reformation, that you are saved by grace through faith alone. And so you can understand why Martin Luther would read this verse and say, no way, this is not biblical. It seems like a direct contradiction to the principles of the Reformation. Well, we're accustomed in English language to a concept called a homonym. And homonyms are words that have multiple meanings. And so you take, for example, bow. A bow can be something you wear in your head. A bow can be a ribbon on a present. Or a bow can be something that you string to hurt someone with. You can be outstanding in the sense that you're exceptional, or you can be outstanding in the sense that you owe someone a debt. And there's an important Greek word here in this, in this verse, which I'm going to spare you the pronunciation of because I'll blow it, but it's the word that underlies justified. And this word can mean either made righteous or shown to be righteous. You see that people are justified by what they do and not by faith alone. And so we have to understand this word justified has a range of meanings. So which one is it in context? Not only with the letter of James, but with the whole Bible. What we see then that what James is likely saying and arguing here is he's using justified in terms of shown to be righteous, that people are shown to be righteous, that is, in right relationship with God by their faithful actions, not a mere claim to faith. And Paul actually says the exact same thing in Romans 2, for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law that will be declared righteous. You see, a mere profession isn't enough. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Such a faith. In other words, can that kind of faith save them? It's not doubting that faith can be the instrument of faith through which God saves, but not mere faith, not mere confession, but such a faith, such a faith being faith without works to substantiate it and legitimate it. A workless faith, a deedless faith, is an empty faith. Abraham was not justified simply by the collection of mental concepts in his head. He wasn't justified simply because he had the right set of ideas in his head. But like the disciples to whom Jesus says, follow me, and they let down their nets and they gave their lives over to him, They drop their nets. Abraham turns his life, his hope, his future over to this relationship with God. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. We'll try to bring it down to real life. But James gives us one more example of a believer, and that is we have the demonic believer. Now we have the pagan believer. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. 
James's contrast here has been a contrast between mere faith and faith as a full response to God. And he chooses an episode in Jewish history that the writer or the readers would have known well, but he summarizes it in one verse, and that is that she gave lodging to the spies. She was a Canaanite prostitute who houses the Israelite spies that are coming into their land. She protects them. She gives lodging to them, to her enemies. Do you see what he's saying in this episode? Rahab's hiding of these spies means that she had changed everything, that she had changed her allegiance from the Canaanite religion to the religion of Yahweh. She had recast her entire life. She was a prostitute and a Canaanite. Now she's a follower of Yahweh. It's not just an ascent to mental concepts, but it's an adaptation of her whole life and her purpose and her hope and her future. It's a complete surrender. Now, here's the catch, and here's the rub, and the difficult thing is it is not the complete surrender itself that saves her but only through that complete surrender can she be saved. Now, James reflects upon this episode, and he reflects upon another very important episode in Jewish history, and it's that of Abraham being considered righteousness because of Genesis 22. He offers his son Isaac to be sacrificed, and James says that in that sacrifice, He is credited as righteous, but if we read, as we did earlier today, Genesis 15, it happens before that sacrifice, and Abraham is declared righteous. He was considered righteous in verse 15 before this event of sacrificing Isaac. And you see, what what we see and what we must see is that there is a declaration of God based upon free grace that precedes Abraham's righteousness that precedes his moral righteousness, his acting, his obedience. In other words, it is God who takes initiative, and it is that prevenient grace that changes Abraham's life. So, God's grace precedes any good works that substantiates our belonging or his belonging, while at the same time, faith without works is dead. Polyphonic, sophisticated, nuanced, difficult to work out, but true. There's a declaration that precedes Abraham's work. And if you're a Christian, there's a declaration that precedes your work and your good deeds. Yet, a proclamation of belief without the requisite actions of obedience isn't alive, and we can't rest upon that. But here, and we'll finish with this, this story of the sacrifice of Isaac isn't there simply to show how faithful and wonderful and how devoted Abraham was, but because it's emblematic of another father who's willing to sacrifice his son. And unlike Isaac, where there is a ram that is found caught in the thicket that becomes a sacrifice and a substitute for Isaac, when this son comes, when Jesus comes, there is no other ram. There is no other sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. He is the substitute. The Son is the substitute. So, God 
friends, is not one who merely professes his love for you, but he acts upon it. And he acts upon it in the most grand, magnificent, wonderful way possible. Is that he doesn't require you to be the sacrifice. He requires himself, and he sends his son in your place as the substitute. Like Abraham, he gives up his own son, but not in some arbitrary test, but to substantiate his own promises to you. And so be reconciled, be reunited with that Father God King who sacrifices his own comfort and his own life so that you can have comfort and eternal life. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, as we have conquered or covered at least a lot of this passage, a lot of difficulty, I pray that it would become clear to us that we are called to obey that we are called to give our lives in service to others, particularly those who are most needy among us, but to do so out of a response to your grace which already exists in our life, to your coming, to your initiation. I pray that as we confess our faith, as we come to the table, that we would see once again how wonderfully gracious you are, that we can be people who don't have to fear you in the wrong sense of that word, in shuddering, but that we can have a friendship with you. And so, Father, I pray that we would see in this meal that you are not our biggest and most constant critic, but that you are our biggest and most constant friend. And we pray that we would live out of that friendship this week. In Jesus' name, amen.